back to Genesis 42. <clears throat> We're in the middle of the story of Joseph here and his son, uh, his brothers coming down uh, from the land of Canaan to Egypt to find food. And we got down to verse 24. And here you know the story that Jacob had sent the brothers down uh, to Egypt to get grain because they were out and that this was a famine that was here, there, and everywhere. Uh, so they'd come down and bought corn from Joseph after having bowed down to him as his dream had said they would. It took years before the dream was fulfilled, but finally it was. And even his father, shortly hereafter, will come down as well and make obeisance to Joseph and be under his care. So <clears throat> let's pick it up then in verse 24. Then Joseph commanded to fill their sacks with corn. He was going to send them back. He had identified himself at this point. Send them back to Jacob, and uh, he was going to play a trick on them. So he said, put their money back in the sacks of corn and restore every man's money into his sack and to give them provision for the way. And this he did to them. So he's being very kind. He not only gave them the money, I mean the corn, they gave, put the money back in their sacks and even gave them food to eat on their way home. So they loaded their asses with the corn and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his ass food, in the end, he is, they, interestingly, they had money, they just didn't have food. They stayed at an inn on their way, so they could afford a motel bill. They didn't have motors then, but a donkey tail or whatever it was. They had money. They just needed food. Pretty soon, there's going to be money everywhere around us and no food. So the story is very similar to what we're about to experience in this country, what we've already experienced spiritually without much spiritual food around. Now it's going to become physical food. They'll throw the money in the street because it's worthless. There's no food to buy. What do you need money for? You can't buy anything. Throw it in the street. And if there was anything around that that money was good for, they would keep it. But what that's telling us is the American dollar is going to get so totally worthless, it will buy nothing. Nothing. So you throw it in the street. Anyway, he found his money in the sack, and he said to his brothers, My money is restored, and it's even in my sack. And their hearts failed them, scared them. They were afraid, saying one to another, What is this that God has done to us? What did God have to do with it? Well, this. They still had guilty consciences over what they had done to Joseph so many years before. They had sinned a sin against their brother that simply would not go away. They lived with it. It haunted them. They may have waked up having bad dreams about it. They whispered among themselves at times, wondering what had happened and if their story would ever be found out. You know, when you've done something bad, you worry. You may have enjoyed doing what you did at the time. I think the brothers were really happy to have gotten rid of Joseph. They probably had extra to eat and drink that night, and somebody may have even danced on top of a rock. 
because they'd gotten rid of this guy that they hated so much who had been a favorite of the father. So it was momentary fun, but then at some point the guilt began to creep in and it would not go away. And we as human beings sometimes do things in our lives that we perhaps can never forget, and sometimes we do things that other people will never forget. So we suffer a penalty. Now God can forgive. God will forgive. God will remove the penalty through our Savior and his blood. But even though the penalty may be, may be removed and we may not suffer an eternal consequence, we do suffer a lifetime consequence, don't we? Because if other people know, then we feel squeamish and funny around them. And if they don't know, we're scared to death someday they will know. So sin has consequences that are unavoidable emotional, psychological disturbances that we never get past. So we think we might be getting away with something in life, but you don't really get away with anything. If it's bad and you do it, you do suffer and pay, sometimes for a lifetime. And sometimes our self-esteem and various things go down so low that we're depressed and frustrated because of what we've done and what we've been. And you see a lot of people suffering with those things. So we need to be careful not to do things that we might later regret, because we will. And these boys were suffering that. See why it's so important that we go back and examine the lives of our, for, of our forefathers and understand what they went through, the lessons they learned, so that we don't repeat them. God said that we have to have our hearts turned to our fathers, and these certainly are our fathers. And Joseph, in this country, is specifically through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the branch we came through. Anyway, they came to Jacob, their father, to the land of Canaan, and told him all that befell them, saying, The man who is the Lord of the land spoke roughly to us, and took us for spies of the country, Boy, did we run into a juggernaut. And we said to him, We are true men. We are not spies. We be twelve brothers, sons of our father. One is not, and the youngest is this day with our father in the land of Canaan. And the man, the lord of the country, said to us, Hereby shall I know that you are true men. Leave one of your brethren here with me, and take food for the famine of your households, and be gone. Joseph had a plan. He thought this thing through. He wanted to get his brothers to Egypt, and he wanted to get his father to Egypt. And he also wanted to drill a lesson home to his brothers who had misused him. Uh, we'll find that he had a very unvengeful attitude when the story all comes out. Uh, he did not take vengeance upon himself, and he did not hate them in return. Uh, Joseph was a man of very, very high character. There are some people who would have never, ever forgiven their brothers or sisters or someone in the family or a friend for what had been done. 
But he had a plan here he's going to work out, and he knew they would become very uncomfortable, and he knew that when they found that money in their sack that uh, things would not be good, and he was going to let their own consciences come down on their head, and that was immediately the first thing they thought of. What has God done? God must be punishing us for what we did all those years ago to our brother. Never left their consciousness. So, verse 34, And bring your youngest brother to me, then shall I know that you are no spies, but that you are true men. So will I deliver you, your brother, and you shall traffic or do trade in the land. You're welcome here, once I prove you're not spies. So that was an excuse for doing to them what he did to them. But he was not doing it out of malice and meanness. He was doing it that the story might turn out right in the long run. What did Christ say? Love your enemies. Do good to them which despitefully use you and misuse you. That is what we are to do. And that is a tall order. When somebody can't stand the sight of you and hates your living guts, it's very hard to love them and do good to them. That's what Christ calls upon us to do, and that's the standard he sets for us. Not to take vengeance, not to backtalk them, not to try to hurt them by demeaning them to other people, but to literally do good to them. Or coals of fire on their head by doing good. How many of us consistently live up to that one? I suspect some of us have never <laughs> lived up to that one uh, because it is so easy to hate back. It is so easy to get angry. Um, even when a brother comes and tries to correct us in love, we get so angry. We have so much vanity and so much ego that we simply cannot stand correction. And that is why we get upset when somebody even however diplomatically they might try to do it, if we are corrected, our vanity gets in our way and our ego is so huge that we get angry and we want to fight back, sometimes just with our tongue, talking about them to others. And sometimes we get so offended that we'll even leave. I've seen that happen with people. Just because you tried to help them. And their vanity and their ego would not allow it. Deeply offended. When God says be humble and contrite, I think we sometimes don't even understand that. We can sometimes have a humble act, but our vanity and our ego and self It's always right under that. And boy, if you want to find out if somebody still has ego or vanity, just try correcting them on some little thing. Doesn't even have to be a big thing. And see how quickly they come unglued. You know, we've learned, haven't we? We'd rather talk about them to someone else because we simply don't have the courage to go to them And talk to them about something. So we'll talk to somebody else about it. We don't think they do things right or handle things right or handle something right or whatever. We'll go talk to somebody else. 
we're afraid of people's reaction. And we've learned that because of people's reactions. That's one thing that makes us such big cowards. Plus, our own ego and our own vanity won't let us do it because we're afraid that they'll come back at us in some way. So people can be pretty complicated. Really, it's pretty simple. <laughs> it's human nature. But human nature can be pretty complicated as well. And we see <clears throat> Joseph working with these guys to try to bring them around, but he's using some chicanery to do it. But I think that we need to understand his attitude here. He wasn't against them, and he wasn't trying to hurt them. He was trying to get them to learn something. Okay, where was I here now? Uh, oh, they were afraid when they saw the bundles of money in their sack. Verse 36, And Jacob their father said to them, me have you bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, and Simeon is not, and you will take Benjamin away. So Simeon had been kept in Egypt, and Joseph, he thought, was dead. Uh, now you want to take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. Now, Jacob didn't have the whole story either, did he? He didn't know Joseph was still alive. He didn't know Joseph still loved him. He didn't know that Joseph still loved his brothers. But it just looked like the whole world was coming to an end to poor Jacob. I've lost Joseph. They've got Simeon in Egypt. And now you want to take Benjamin away from me. Sometimes it looks darkest before the light. And God did not enlighten Jacob, nor did Joseph enlighten Jacob or the brothers. He let them grope for answers. He let them learn how to handle things, how to learn wisdom. Now, God allows us many times to have difficulties so that we learn how to handle difficulties. We're going to be given opportunity to rule the world shortly under Christ, to be the leaders of the new millennium. Satan's plans aside, that's the way it's coming down. Do we need wisdom? Do we need diplomacy? Do we need patience? Do we need love? Do we need joy and happiness and peace and the fruit of the Spirit of God? Yes, we do. Because we're going to encounter some pretty naughty problems that we're going to have to work through with people. The big advantage we'll have is that these people, having seen World War III and having seen their friends and relatives die, are going to be humbled to the bone. To truly humble people is an almost impossible job. God himself has come to the conclusion that the only way you can humble people is to kill 90% plus of them. And the 10% that are left will generally be ready to listen. But it'll take the destruction of 90% to get the remaining 10% to listen. And even then, Zechariah 14 indicates that 
Egypt won't want to come up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And that they won't have any rain until they do. So even having seen the incredible destruction that is coming on this planet, they still will not humble themselves before God, Christ, and his bride. Isn't that incredible? Now, with that perspective, do we see why it is so hard to humble ourselves before each other? How it is so easy to defend ourselves and to justify ourselves and not just say, oh, you're right, I'll work on that. Or even if you disagree and don't think you have that problem, to say, you could be right, I'll think about that and pray about it and study on it, and I'll try to determine if that is correct, and if you're right, I'll go to work on it. How often do we see that attitude in people when we mention something and see them start getting, boy, the claws just like that. It's just an automatic reaction, isn't it? How defensive we get. Partly because of our own insecurities, partly because of our vanities. There are a lot of different emotions humanly that we have. But almost invariably, if you disagree with someone or tell them something about themselves, that's the way it is. It is an innate part of our psyches. It's intrinsic to our human nature. It's just part of us. And you have to fight it. Because God is looking for a humble, contrite people who are willing to be corrected, to be instructed, to be guided, instead of thinking they have all the answers or that they are okay. It's part of our image of ourselves that we don't want destroyed. So we put our best foot forward, sometimes for people, and then we talk behind their backs. We're two-faced. We can be all friendly and all smiley and all hunky-dory in front of them. And the minute they turn their back and walk away, we say what we really think to somebody else. That's two-faced. It's a lie. The smile and how are you, happy, happy, is a lie. Now maybe we need to go ahead and smile and be happy, but at the same time we need to be changing our attitudes and get rid of the negative other side of it so that we are supportive. We're in this together. We're family. We're here to learn to get along and to make allowance for each other and to help one another. And iron to sharpen iron. Now, when you sharpen a steel knife on a file or on a rock, however you sharpen it, there's pressure and there's friction and there's heat. And when we, by doing the things we do and encouraging and even needling each other once in a while to do a little better than we have been doing, it generally strikes a reaction. It creates friction. And most of that friction is because of our vanity and our ego. That's where it comes from. It's the root cause of it. If we were truly humble, we'd be easily corrected, easily teachable, easily guided of a ready mind, seeking so much to try to be what we ought to be that we would respond favorably. 
But that's hard. You know, you, is that the way I appear to you? Oh man, I'm so sorry. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll fix that. I'll try to change that. Eager to change. Eager to learn. As the Bible puts it, teachable. But our vanity does not want us to admit a lot of times that we don't know something or that we got it wrong. Or that there might be a better answer. So it had built up in Jacob's mind. He says, all these things are against me. Everything's going wrong. My wife died, my favorite one, and my children by her are being taken from me. Woe is me. Reuben spoke to his father saying, slay my two sons if I bring him not to you. Now there's a real solution, isn't it? Uh, if I don't bring him back, just kill my kids. Yeah, Jacob wanted to kill a couple of his grandkids. Now, if Reuben hadn't brought him back, maybe he'd want to kill Reuben. <laughs> no, I doubt he would have taken it that far. I appreciate Reuben's attitude. Some people say that this was Judah, because if you go down to verse 8, it says Judah. And uh, let's see, one other up that mentions Judah in verse 3 of chapter 43 as well is the one doing this. So it may be that Reuben was in, slotted in there uh, by mistake. It could have been a writer's mistake or something, so it could be Judah here speaking of this, as we'll see as we go down. So Judah or Reuben, it doesn't really matter. The attitude was such, I'm willing to give up my two sons. That's the pledge I'll make if, you don't, if I don't bring him back. So I'm sure he knew Jacob had no intention of doing such, thing, such a thing, but he was willing to offer it. That's how serious he was about, I'll do the job that's before me. I will be responsible, and I will get this done. Deliver him, deliver him into my hand, and I will bring him to you again. And he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is left alone. If mischief befall him by the way in which you go, then shall you bring me down to my grave with sorrow. Well, he was fearful. A little bit later he changes his mind, but that was his initial reaction. I'm sure this had some effect on them, too. Well, Joseph was his favorite. Now Benjamin's his favorite. So they, they still probably had an attitude. Verse, uh, chapter 43, then. The, the famine was sore in the land. Conditions got worse and worse. And it came to pass, when they had eaten up the grain which they had brought out of Egypt, their father said to them, Go again and buy us a little food. At least he recognized a need. Most people in the church today don't recognize a need. Some do for spiritual food. But if they don't come up with an attitude and an appetite for the spiritual, then they are going to suffer the lack of physical food as well. If this nation would turn and seek God with its whole heart and seek spiritual food, God would not take away our physical food. But this nation will not do it, and God said it will not repent, and therefore their physical food will be taken away to get their attention so they'll turn to spiritual food. And even we, who understand and who are seeking, sometimes have trouble 
seeking the spiritual food the way we need to, the way Christ said to do it, like we were looking for silver and gold. People will go to a lot of time, effort, and energy, and labor, and hard work for silver and gold. But they're not willing to work that hard to dig treasure out of the Bible and treasure in heaven on their knees. It's hard. It's against human nature. We're physical beings, and we respond to the physical. And it's hard for us to seek the spiritual. It does not come naturally. People will work 16, 18, 20 hours a day. I used to for physical things. But they're not willing to work 30 minutes or an hour a day for spiritual things. Amazing, isn't it? How physical we are and how we put that ahead of the spiritual. We must be very, very careful not to do that. To be sure we take care of the spiritual. Because that's the only thing that is going to separate us from these people out here that are going to die in the coming world conflagration that is about upon us. Some are even saying that this thing that's happening in Georgia is the beginning of it because the United States is behind it, trying to be friends of Georgia and pushing at Russia. And I think that there may very well be something to that. They're now reporting that they've been finding American-supplied guns in Georgia. Not southeastern U.S., but over there, you know. So the famine is sore upon the land. Go buy us a little food. Verse 3, And Judah spoke to him, saying, The man did solemnly protest to us, saying, You shall not see my face, except your brother be with you. Now they were between a rock and a hard place. Joseph had said, Don't you dare come back. You won't see me and you won't get any grain unless you bring your brother here. And Jacob's telling them, I am not sending my last son by Rachel with you. He'll die on the way, and I'll go to my grave in sorrow. So here they are, betwixt and between. <coughs> and they had caused the problem in the first place. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. They were willing to rebel against their father here because they knew what Joseph had said. They were really in a, in a pickle. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face except your brother be with you. And Israel said, Wherefore dealt you so bad with me as to tell the man whether you even had a brother? Why didn't you tell him that in the first place? Well, Joseph knew they had a brother and he pushed it. They said, the man asked us straight out of our state and of our kindred, saying, is your father yet alive? I mean, he asked some piercing questions. Have you another brother? Well, he knew good and well they did. He knew which questions to ask. Don't you just hate it when people are like that? You're trying to hide something, and boy, they know which questions to ask. We told him according to the tenor of these words, could we certainly know that he would say, bring your brother down? I mean... He asked us the question, we simply answered the question, how do we know he's going to make us bring our brother down here? That is kind of unusual sounding, isn't it? But Joseph knew the story. Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me, 
And we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. So he gets right down to brass tacks. We're going to sit here and starve to death if this isn't done. All of us, including Benjamin. I will be surety for him. Of my hand shall you require him. If I bring him not to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we had returned the second time. Now, I don't know that there has to be a discrepancy here. Reuben may indeed have offered to have the two sons killed uh, if his father, I mean, if, if Benjamin didn't come back. And his offer failed, so Judah may have followed it up and said, let me be surety. I don't know that there has to be a contradiction or an error here whatsoever. They may have simply offered separately, each one trying to convince poor Jacob who didn't want to see another child die. Verse 11, their father Israel said to them, if it must be so now, do this. And then he gave instruction as to how they should go about it. He's going to try to make it as easy as possible and try to placate Joseph. If it has to be done, do it this way. Take of the best fruits in the land, in your vessels, carry down the man a present, a little balm, a little honey, spices and myrrh, nuts and almonds. So they did have a few things there, but not enough to sustain, not the food that they needed to live on. And take double money in your hands. <coughs> and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks, carry it again in your hand. Perhaps it was an oversight. I don't know how this could have happened, but maybe there was a mistake made. And take double money. So they had plenty of money. That wasn't the problem. Take also your brother and arise, go again to the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man. So he made a plea to God uh, that they find mercy. So he, I mean, this was, had to be done. There was no other course to take. No alternative other than starving to death. Maybe God will give you mercy that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So he bit the bullet. He counted the cost. He said... I don't see any other answer. You boys are pretty set in your mind about how this is, and I guess it's the way it has to be. So they had to threaten to rebel and refuse, but they were willing to do it Jacob's way also when he gave them instructions about how to go about it. So that's the way they did it. The men took that present, and they took double money in their hand, and Benjamin and rose up and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with him, he said to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home and slay, or slaughter, an animal, and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. Uh, we have to have our meat aged. They didn't do it then. They didn't have the refrigeration and the aging rooms like we have. Remember when Abraham killed a fatted calf on the plains of Mamre for Christ and the angels. They went out, killed it, ate it right away. And uh, here he did the same thing. They showed up in the morning. He said, go kill an animal, prepare it. These men shall dine with me at noon. And the man did as Joseph bade, 
and the men, man brought them in into Joseph's house. That must have seemed strange to them too. Why would I be taken into the ruler's house? The men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house. I think I would be too. And they said, it's because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time we were brought in. So he's using their guilt on them here. That he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us for bondmen and our donkeys. So they figured he had nefarious plans in mind. <coughs> they came near to the steward of Joseph's house and they commanded a commune with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, sir, we came indeed down at the first time to buy food. We didn't come here to do any harm. We just came to buy food. They were making all kinds of excuses and they were worried sick. It came to pass when we came to the inn that we opened our sacks and behold, every man's money was in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, and we brought it again in our hands. And other, other money have we brought down in our hands to buy food. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. Of course, the reaction would be, that's a likely story. <laughs> and he said, peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father has given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money. And he brought them, Simeon, out to them. So he's... They're afraid, they're guilty, they're worried. And he says, peace, don't fear. And then he indicated that he knew their God and the God of their father. And that he was the one that gave the treasure in your sacks. I had your money all along. I put it there and he brought Simeon out. Isn't this incredible? That was their brother, and they still didn't recognize him after all this. What a, an amazing transformation had occurred in Joseph. And not only that, but their minds, in their minds, Joseph was dead. So even had there been a similarity or a likeness there, that might not have penetrated because in their mind he was dead, and they had been fighting their guilt and their conscience on this all these years. The man brought them in into Joseph's house and gave them water. And they washed their feet. And they gave their donkeys food or hay. And they made ready the present against Joseph came at noon. For they heard that they should eat bread there. So they looked at their treasures and the gifts that they were going to give to Joseph and worried among themselves and says, I wonder if this will placate him. I wonder if he'll be happy now. Will he understand our story and so on. Joseph really had them going. I, I love this story. It's, it's great. And it's all put out in detail by God, isn't it? Pages here in the Bible going through this story. It must be a very, very important story. There are some stories in the Bible that we would think were far more maybe important than this that might should have been explained more. And yet God chose to extend this and give us all the details of this story. Now, to me, that means that God must think this is a very important story for us now. This story was not written for Joseph. It wasn't written for Jacob. It wasn't written for Isaac or Abraham who were already dead. It was written for us, upon whom the ends of the world have come. 
It was written for us who are the seed of Abraham here at the end as the seed of sand of the sea and as the corn in the field. And the story of famine and pestilence after having had plenty in this country is the same story that we are addressing this very day. So God is giving us some very important insight here. It's not just a children's Sunday Bible school story. It's something very deep about the character of these people and how they reacted to God and to each other and the attitudes they had. And God knew we would have the same difficulties, the same attitudes, the same contentions between brethren that they had then between their brothers. We have it between brethren and the church. And if you think we have contention now, wait till you see the contention between those that God takes out and preserves and saves from the trouble to come and those who are in the trouble and the hatred and the jealousy that is going to be there. We are going to be despised by the whole earth beyond belief. Most of the world now despises Americans and are jealous of them. But when Americans and the rest of the world are being killed and dying of famine and pestilence, and we sit high on the mountain of Zion and have plenty to eat and good weather and no enemies that can reach us, and everything we need, we will be hated beyond the hate that has ever been on earth for anyone. And those two who go out from Zion to preach to them are going to probably, well, undoubtedly be the two people who are hated more than any two people have ever been hated since Adam and Eve. The whole world will know them and hate them. The good side of this is we will be taken care of and their hate won't matter. And God will then turn it around and use us as a blessing to them when they come and worship before our feet. They will hate us as much as human beings can hate. And then it will be turned around because God is God and they will love us more than man has ever been able to love before. Turn it completely around. God has that capacity. And you see that happening with these human emotions in this story as we go through it. But realize it's not just an isolated case in history, but it's something coming to us soon. Okay. They made ready, got their little gifts together. Verse 26, And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. This is getting to be a common practice with them, <clears throat> fulfilling the dream that Joseph had had those many years before. And he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he yet alive? And they answered, Your servant our father is in good health. He is yet alive. They probably smiled hopefully when they said it. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. He's fine. 
and they ducked their heads and gave respect to Joseph and probably wondered what's coming next. Because this has to be very up and down with their emotions. He's jerking in one direction and then another uh, with their guilt. More did he know which buttons to push. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spoke to me? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels or his emotions did yearn upon his brother, and he sought where to weep. And he entered into his chamber and wept there. So he began to lose it, and he, he ran into the other room to cry and sob because he saw his brother Benjamin that he had loved dearly, his younger brother, and the only full brother that he had. And he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said, set on bread. So he got control of himself, had the emotional control, even though he lost it for a bit. Real men can cry. Real men do cry. All people need to cry at times. He was very emotional about this and was able to let the emotion out, yet he didn't want to do it in front of them because he wasn't done with them yet. So he went in, got himself composed, came back. And they set on for him by himself, and for them by themselves, so it was in the same house, same room probably, but divided. <coughs> for the Egyptians, which did eat with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. They weren't about to sit at the same table with a bunch of lowly, scum Israelites. That's the way the Egyptians looked upon them. Was there racial hatred? Oh, yes, there was. And the Israelites at this point were the ones that were down and suffered in the land of Ham, as the Psalms say several times. Now, isn't it interesting and strange that we can have such deep racial feelings between the Pakis and the Indians, between, uh, well, anywhere you want to name on earth, really. There are ra there's racial strife and people that are nasty and mean and racist toward each other. This happens all over the world. But people, because of merely, purely physical reasons, whatever, will hate one another and will not sit down and eat together. And then God, and that's because of just simple human reasons, emotions and feelings and hurts and wars that have gone on in the past, slaveries, you name it. But then God, Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, says we need to separate ourselves from this world and be different and not be friends with the world, because he himself says, if you're friends with the world, you're enemies with me. Makes a very clear-cut statement that cannot be misinterpreted, cannot be done anything with except ignored, or unbelieved, or unfollowed, because we simply don't want to obey God. So we have extreme difficulty separating ourselves from this world and its culture and society because God says to do it that way. 
We'll do it for human reasons, but we won't do it for godly reasons. Why is it we are so perverse, so selfish, and so tied to our emotions that we will do things on our own that we simply will not do for God? And then God says among ourselves, we are to set aside racism and we're to be brothers together and neither Greek nor Hebrew, bond nor free, male nor female. We're all to be one together in Christ. So where God says make a division from the world, we have trouble with it. And then when God says be united and be close together and one no matter what your history, race, education or whatever, I'm calling my people out of this world to be separate from it and I want you to bond together and be one so that in your mind there's not Greek or Hebrew, black or white, brown or yellow or green, male or female. You're to all love one another with all your hearts and become together, united, to speak the same thing, to say the same thing, and not to be any division among you. We are to divide from the world and we are not to divide from each other. And we have trouble with both. And so did our forefathers. The battles they fought were the same battles we fight. Hard to imagine a world where everyone will agree. We'll be on the same page and have no divisions and no attitudes about other people. Anyway, they were there in a room divided. And they sat before him, the firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men marveled one at another. So they sat down at the table in order of birth. <clears throat> and he took and sent messes to them from before him. So he sent the food that was on his table down to them. But Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs, and they drank and were merry with him. So he said, we'll set aside differences. Here he was allegedly an Egyptian, and the Egyptians in the room were separated, probably wouldn't speak to them, much less eat with them, and yet Joseph sent food from his table, and he began to play it up and to make a party out of it, liven it up and make merry. This must have seemed strange to the Egyptians and to the brothers. What's this guy doing? He put the money in the sack, and they, now he's not hurting us, and now he's wanting to party with us. Must have seemed weird. Chapter 44, <clears throat> And he commanded the steward of his house, saying, Fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry, and put every man's money in his sack's mouth. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the sack's mouth of the youngest, and his corn money. And he did according to the word that Joseph had spoken. 
And as soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away, they and their asses, and when they were gone out of the city, and not yet far off, Joseph said to his steward, Get up, follow after the men, and when you do overtake them, say to them, Why have you rewarded evil for good? Well, he had a party with them, killed the fatted calf for them, uh, made merry with them, and then put all their stuff back in their sacks. This is quite a plot, quite a story. And boy, Benjamin was the one that was really in trouble having Joseph's own cup, the silver cup. Why have you rewarded evil for good? Is not this it in which my Lord drinks his very own cup, and whereby indeed he divines you have done evil in so doing? Divines, in my margin, says makes trial. I, I'm sure it means... Uh, when he drinks out of this cup, it's the one that he, it's his favorite cup. It's the one that when he is thinking or having solitude and, and sorting out things and making judgments and uh, policies and administration, this is the cup he drinks out of when he does it. So this isn't just Joseph's cup. This is not just a silver cup. This is Joseph's silver favorite cup. And you've taken it. And he overtook them, and he spoke to them these same words. And they said to him, Wherefore, says my Lord, these words? Why are you making these accusations? God forbid that your servants should do according to this thing. We wouldn't do anything like that. But the evidence was there, wasn't it? Behold the money which we found in our sacks' mouths we brought again to you out of the land of Canaan. How then should we steal out of your Lord's house silver or gold? Their story made sense to them, and that's exactly what they had done. But the plot thickens. With whomsoever of your servants it be found. People make statements sometimes that they later regret. Both let him die, and we also will be my Lord's bondmen. They were pretty casual with each other's lives. But they also thought they were absolutely right. Now you'd think they'd have learned something after the first episode, but they hadn't learned much yet, had they? Why didn't it occur to them that maybe the money had been put back in their sacks and the cup too, the same way the money had been put in the sack before. But the, he was really jerking them around. And he said, now also let it be according to your words. Okay, we'll do that. And he knew where the cup was and he knew where the money was. So you said it, let it be done. He with whom it is found shall be my servant and you shall be blameless. So he didn't take it as far as they had offered said, he'll just be my servant, and you, the rest of you, can go. But he knew from Joseph, and Joseph knew certainly, which one Benjamin was and how important he was to dad. Then they speedily took down every man his sack to the ground. Well, we're going to prove you're wrong. And opened every man his sack. Oh, no. And he searched and began at the eldest and left at the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack wasn't worried about the money. He was going for the silver. Then they ripped their clothes and loaded every man his ass and returned to the city. Boy, we're in trouble now. We're in trouble here and we're in trouble with Dad. There's no way out of this. And Judah and his brethren came to Joseph's house, for he was yet there, and they fell before him on the ground. How many times is this going to happen? That dream came true over and over and over again. 
Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Would you, what you not that such a man as I can certainly divine? I can think things through that I might know what's going on. You guys are so transparent. I could see right through you. I knew it. I just knew it. You're going to steal the money again and steal my cup. Played it for all it was worth. And Judah said, What shall we say? What shall we speak? Or how shall we clear ourselves? I left out the words, My Lord. What shall we say, My Lord? So they were worshiping before Joseph and bowing before him. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and also with whom the cup is found. So they're still bringing God into it. God has found our iniquity. And I don't think they were referring here necessarily to the money or the cup. It was what they had done to Joseph that was still very heavily on their minds and emotions. Ever do anything you wish you hadn't done and wish you could take it back? Too late. It's already done. People have been hurt. Things have been messed up. Sometimes you just simply can't fix it. The lesson for us is don't break it in the first place. If they hadn't done what they'd done to Joseph, then they wouldn't find themselves in this pickle. We found out our iniquity. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also with whom the cup is found. So they, they could only act humble and act worshipful. What else can you do? Caught red-handed. Plea of guilty. And he said, God forbid that I should do so. But the man in whose hand the cup is found, he shall be my servant. And as for you, get you up in peace to your father. Now he's still, he's, he's playing them like a fiddle because he knew that Benjamin was the main focus of dad and they didn't know that he knew that. You guys go free. No big deal. Just leave Benjamin here and he'll be my servant. And that to them was horrible news because they knew what they'd face if they came home without Benjamin. Go in peace. Just leave Benjamin here. Oh, no. <laughs> then Judah came near to him. He came up close and said, O oh my Lord, let your servant, I pray you, speak a word in my Lord's ears, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are even as Pharaoh. I recognize that you're important, and he plays to what he figures is Joseph's vanity and tries in some way to get him to listen. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? Remember what you asked me? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man and a child of his old age, a little one, and his brother is dead, and he alone is left with his mother, and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes upon him. I'm going to tell him the whole story all over again, as if Joseph didn't remember it. And we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for he should leave. if he should leave his father, his father would die. If you're ever trying to think up a practical joke of some kind, man, would this be good fodder, except that this is life and death and a very deep thing, not just a joke. But you couldn't dream up a better one if, it's, if that's what you were trying to do. His father would die, and you said to your servants, except your youngest brother come down with you, you shall see my face no more 
And it came to pass, when we came up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, Go again and buy us a little food. And we said, We can't go down. If our youngest brother be with us, then we will go down, for we may not see the man's face except our youngest brother be with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife, Rachel, bare me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I saw him not since. And if you take this also from me, and mischief befall him, you shall bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to the grave. So they're being as honest and open and as truthful as you can possibly be here. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad be not with us, seeing that his life is bound up in the lad's life, it shall come to pass, when he sees that the lad is not with us, that he will die. And your servant shall bring him down to the grave. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I bring him not to you, then I shall bear the blame to my father forever. Now therefore, I beg you, I beseech you, I pray you, let your servant abide instead of the lad, a bondman to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. <coughs> For how shall I go up to my father, and the lad be not with me? Lest peradventure I see the evil that shall come on my dad. He bared his soul. This was something very serious to him. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. He finally reached the point that his emotions took over and he couldn't carry on the charade any longer. And he cried, Cause every man to go out for me. And there stood no man with him while Joseph made himself known to his brethren. So he sent all the servants, the armed men, the guards, all the men of Egypt out. And he just started weeping crying out loud, sobbing, I'm sure, his whole soul racked by the emotion that had been built up here over the years, over the months, over the weeks, as his brothers came back and forth, and he made them stew in their own juices. He wept aloud, and the Egyptians in the house of Pharaoh heard, so they were clear out of the house. He wasn't just shedding a little tear. He was sobbing and crying so loud They'd even out of the house, he could be heard. And the brothers must have thought, man, this is weird. <laughs> Why is this guy crying now? Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And his brothers could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. Terrified, it says in my margin. Here's the man who holds our lives in his hand, and he's sobbing and crying, and now he says he's Joseph. Scared him half to death. And Joseph came, and Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. So he had the story. Where, where, where would he have known that if he weren't the guy? Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me here. For God did send me before you to preserve life. God had a huge purpose here that seemed to Jacob 
to be everything against me. Everything is wrong. Nothing seems right. Joseph, I'm sure, felt abandoned, didn't understand what God was doing. A, they threatened to kill him. B, they threw him in a pit. C, they sold him into Egypt. D, he got thrown in the dungeon there and stayed seven years. I mean, over your lifetime, from age 17 until this episode, wouldn't you feel kind of picked on? And Joseph had come up roses and everything that had happened. Even in prison, they put him in charge of the whole thing. <laughs> prison keeper went off and smoked and drank and said, you take care of this mess. And Joseph did. Or whatever he liked to do. God did this. Even though things had looked really, really bad, Joseph could see God's hand in everything. And we need to be able to do that. Things might not look good for us sometimes. Sometimes we may think, how could this be right? How could this be so? Why is God letting us suffer? Why is God letting us, a few of us die? Why does this happen and why does that happen? And it seems to be against us. But God has a plan and a purpose. And you who, you who understand know that. Just like Joseph knew that. The brothers at this point still didn't know that. And our brethren out here in this world, in the church, God's called out ones, most of them don't know it. Now sometimes you feel like giving up and quitting. Sometimes you think it's too much. Sometimes you think I can't handle it anymore. Sometimes you feel tired and weary. But I defy you to unknow what you know, to unlearn what you've learned, to deny that it's true, because it rings so true throughout the Bible. Most of your brethren are not willing to look at the whole Bible. They're not willing to see how the story fits together. They do not have their minds open to understand. They have only what was crammed into their head that church has to preach the gospel around the world and we'll get that done and we'll run to a place of safety and everything will be fine. And that is the extent of their understanding. We know a lot more has to be done. So, maybe Joseph felt like giving up at times. But he knew that God had worked through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, his father. And he knew that if he followed in the ways of his fathers, everything would come out all right. How many men would have turned down Potiphar's wife? How many? Very, very few. Especially when they knew the political implications and what she could do and what she did when he turned her down. How many could have withstood the things that Joseph withstood and walked away from as a human being that were so easily there for him. He could have had anything in Egypt he wanted and basically did have anything in Egypt he wanted except those things which he denied himself 
because God said so. That was the only reason they were denied him, because he denied himself. Same position we find ourselves in. We're in a nation, in this world, where we have anything, basically, that we can want, and we can get it on credit, or could, getting where you can't now, but you could. And the only things that are denied us are what we deny ourselves. Same position Joseph was in. And the only reason we have to deny those things to ourselves that we might enjoy or have fun with are because of God in heaven. If it were not for promises ahead, as Paul said, we are of all men most miserable. Wouldn't it be liberating to go out of here and eat, drink, and be merry and do anything we wanted to do? Whatever your eye, your ear, your mouth, your hands, any of your senses desire, you can just go do it like the world is doing. You wouldn't have to work at fighting yourself and overcoming. You wouldn't have to deny temptation. Hey, you're tempted to do something? Do it. Whatever feels good, do it. That's the philosophy of the world around us. And it's easy to go that way. It's hard to restrain ourselves. But we have eternal life offered, and we have protection offered from what is coming on this world. If we will do things God's way and learn to live his way, everything is going to turn up roses, just like it did for Joseph. So he said, all this bad stuff was for a reason, and God put me through it to preserve life. He, had, he chose me to do a job, Joseph told them. Whether you like it or not, or whether you accept it or not, this is the way it came down. For these two years has the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years in the which there shall neither be earring nor harvest. He had knowledge and information they didn't have, didn't he? God had given it to him through the dreams of Pharaoh and the interpretation that he put upon them. He knew the future. He knew what was going to happen. He knew how long the famine was going to last. His brothers didn't have a clue. It was just famine and they had nothing to eat, so they went to get what they could. Are we in a position, my brothers and sisters, that we know what is coming down? We know how it will happen and we know God's solution. And we know that even though we may go through trials, tests, and troubles in the meantime, that if we come through, God is going to provide for us and take care of us, and we will not suffer loss. It may seem like it for a while, like it did to Joseph. But it will all turn out good. You've got five more years to go through. God sent me before you to preserve your posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. I think God has sent us here to prepare a way for something that he is about to do. And we're in the same position Joseph was in in many respects. He's given us the knowledge and the understanding to know what's coming down and what needs to be done about it and what he is going to do, that he's going to draw 10% of his remnant people, his faithful people together, and he's going to build another temple. 
what he said has to be done here at the end. He said, leave your fancy homes, your McMansions, and come build my temple. That is his instruction. How many of the church understand that? And how many who, even of those few who do understand it, how many are willing to actually do it? You are the few, the chosen. Respect it. And answer to it and live up to it. Because God is choosing more. And he's going to bring them together. We're just the prep crew to get it ready for them. But if we do our part, it's coming here. If we don't do our part, maybe God will do it somewhere else. And I think I can say that without saying we're anything special. I think I can say that because if God gives the understanding to people, then those are the ones he wants to respond to it. There are people in other groups, there are ministers everywhere, who do not understand what we understand. Therefore, they cannot respond to that knowledge. They absolutely can't. We are the only ones who can because we have the knowledge. So God did not indiscriminately give that knowledge out to anyone except and unless he wanted them to do something about it, to do a job. So if he only gave it to a few, those few are the ones that he expects to get the job accomplished. That's why he said, be strong, be of good courage, fear not, and work, over and over again. Said it to Joshua when he went into the promised land, said it to his people in Zephaniah and Haggai and through the prophecies, says it in Isaiah in some places. Those are the things that God tells us to do. Can we accomplish those four things? Be strong, be of good courage, fear not, and work. That requires faith, not to fear. It requires love to care enough for other people to go through what we have to go through to prepare for them, to give our bread to those in need. And it requires hope. And hope is engendered, built, and strengthened by reading these scriptures that promise these things. So you get hope through reading it, and then you have faith and love from God to see it through and get it done. So we find ourselves in the same position that Joseph was in. He's given us this, this information not to save our own butts, but to help save the lives of others. If I may be so frank. God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. God says the deliverance that is coming is greater than that of Joseph. It is greater than crossing the Red Sea coming out of Egypt 430 years later. It is greater than anything that has ever happened on the face of this earth. 
and it lies just ahead. There's going to come a time when we can say to people that God has done this through us so that he might save other lives. The story is the same. hasn't changed. Can't say it yet now because people would laugh. Just as these brothers would have laughed earlier. And I think that Joseph was wise in putting them through all the ups and downs and the hoops that he put them through so that when it came time for them to understand, they would have been conditioned. Because he did not have vengeance and hatred in his mind at all. He had, we need to understand, we need to love in his mind. And he barely held himself back until they were humbled and had no way to go but to listen to him. And this world is going to have itself in a position where it has no way to go. And the only way for God's called out ones to go is through the narrow channel that he has provided. And we can be part of that channel. God gave Joseph knowledge that the others did not have. He has given us knowledge that the rest of our brethren do not have. We should not despise them. We should look forward to someday weeping out loud and seeing our friends and relatives and brothers and cousins and acquaintances come back to God and go where he wants them to go. We have such an incredible opportunity ahead of us. And so do our young people. Because they can be the leaders in the world tomorrow. When we're spirit beings, they can still be physical human beings setting an example for the others and raising their families in peace, and happiness, prosperity, no fear of war. And do it the way it needs to be done, with love and peace. Can't be done in the world today. So now it was not you that sent me here. You thought you sold me and got rid of me. It wasn't you that did it. It was God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house. This is something Jacob, Joseph would not have done or been able to do on his own. God gave him grace and favor, just like he had Daniel, just like he did Nehemiah, did the same thing with Joseph. Joseph was easy to work with, though, because he had a positive uplifting attitude even in bad times. Now people say, well, I'm an optimist. Other people will say, well, I'm a, what's the word I'm looking for? Not, I'm not, not a negativist. A, a, a who? A pessimist. That's the word I was looking for. Uh, ancient brain. People say, well, I'm an optimist or I'm a pessimist. Well, fine. Maybe that's what you are. That's not what you're to stay. Well, that's just the way I am. All right, change. God does not like pessimists. He doesn't. He's looking for those who are positive, who are willing to look for the good, who are willing to find the good, who are willing to esteem others better than themselves rather than putting them down and lowering them in their own eyes. 
so that they can appear better. God does not want pessimists. He wants optimists. He wants people who can find the good in any situation. And Joseph, our forefather, our direct, in-line dad, was an optimist. He made the best out of every difficult situation he found himself in. He saw God's hand wherever he was, whether it was in a dungeon with no hope in sight or in a pit about to be sold into Egypt or killed. He saw the good side of it. He saw how this could work out. And he encouraged and helped and strengthened others around him. He didn't sit around and say, well, God must have abandoned me or the leadership here isn't any good and I must be the only one that knows what's really going on and blah, 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 blah. No. He said, God must know what he's doing and I'm going to do everything I can to lift everybody up around me. What did he have there? He had a bunch of these Egyptian slaves who hated Hebrews. Wouldn't even eat with them. And yet somehow he was positive enough in his approach that he got those Egyptians who despised Hebrews to look to him, to answer to him, to cooperate with him and do what he asked. So much so that the warden of the prison said, man alive, I've never seen anything like this. Put him in charge of it all. The morale had gone up in that prison. The prisoners were more cooperative. And it was all because of Joseph's optimistic attitude. So if you are a lifelong pessimist, a naysayer, tend to be negative, get over it. Deal with it. Do something about it. There's no room for negative talk and yeah, 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 yeah. There's no room for it. You people, every last one of you, have an absolute responsibility before God not to listen to negative naysaying, how could this be baloney? You have a responsibility before Almighty God to turn that situation around and make it positive and speak upliftingly or tell them, go away, I don't want to hear it. You have no responsibility to let them confide negativity. You have no responsibility to listen to that which turns down and off and away. And if somebody thinks they have a responsibility to clue you in on how bad things are or how bad our leadership is or whatever, then they need to repent and get over it. Do not listen to it. Haven't we experienced enough of that around here over the last five, six years that we ought to have learned to say, I don't want to hear it. Talk about something positive or I'm out the door. 
Now, where are we going to find the backbone to stand up to those who would be negative? Joseph, our father, did it. There is not much positive in a prison. Everything is down. Everything is bad. The warden's bad. The food's bad. The beds are bad. The prisoners are bad. The roaches are bad. Even the rats are bad. Nothing good there to a prisoner. And they don't talk positive much. They hate life. They hate each other. They hate the warden. They hate the system. They hate the leadership. They hate everything. And when people get themselves into a negative attitude about things, that's the way they approach it. Now when God said, turn your hearts to your fathers, the one closest to us out of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is Joseph. Well, and Ephraim to follow, or Manasseh, depending on where we are. Now, Joseph took the absolute, utter negativity of prison and somehow turned those prisoners into people who were cooperative, willing, helpful, responsive, and quit complaining and bitching and griping all the time. And the warden couldn't believe it. So he said, I'm putting you in charge of everything. You run this thing a lot better than I do. There's the challenge. Let's turn our hearts to our father, Joseph. And let's find a way to either walk away from negativity, or even better, how to turn it to positivity. We should be absolute optimists, brethren, because God Almighty has promised us eternal life, he has promised us everything we could ever need, no tears, no fears, no worries in the world tomorrow, and he's promised our children a peaceful place to raise their families. And he's promised us protection from all this to come if we will but obey him. Now, where is room for negativity? Well, you can look at Daryl Henson, and there's a good place to start if you want to find some. I'm a human being. I have five senses. Sometimes a sixth, barely maybe, but five I know. And you don't like the way I do some things. I know you don't. I don't like the way I do some things either. I don't like some of the things I say. I don't like some of the things I think. And some of them I like too much. That's not the point. We don't need to be chorus. If God has done something, we honor it and respect it in spite of the human beings that are involved. No, I don't do things exactly as you would do them. There are a lot of different ways to skin a cat. And none of them, as far as I know, are sin. You can start at the head and start skinning backward. You can start at the tail and skin forward. You can start in the middle by cutting the belly open and skinning him from there. 
A lot of different ways to approach it. That doesn't mean they're sinful. Now, there are sinful ways to do things, too, yes. But we're all trying to avoid that. And I'm doing my level best to try to do things God's way in spite of me. Now, you need to look to God, not just me. Because you will not always like the way I do things. And if you want to get yourself into an attitude, you'll not like the way God does things. There are a lot of people on this earth that don't like the way God does things. About 99.9999999% of them don't like the way God does things. They don't like his rules. They don't like his approach. They don't like trials, troubles, and tribulations. They don't like a lot of things God does. And when Christ was here, Son of God, did everything perfect, they hated him. Everything he did was wrong in the eyes of people who had negative attitudes. Everything Christ himself did while he was on this earth, he was hated and despised for doing. And he never made a mistake. Never had a wrong attitude. Now, I've done all the above. And yet I'm not hated as much as Christ was. Sometimes we have to live with ourselves. And sometimes we have to live with what God sent, however fallible it might be, to live with and deal with. And that's part of learning to be eternal optimists. And that's what Joseph was. When will we be like Joseph, our father? I think it is very, very important that we go through the stories of these men so that we can understand what we need to be. There's a lot to learn here. And we're all imperfect. I'll be the first to admit that I am. But I don't like to face it sometimes. So when you tell me, well, you're wrong about this, maybe I'll get a little defensive and my ego and vanity and self will get in the way. But most of you are afraid to tell me anyway. If you don't think like the way I'm doing something, you're going to tell somebody else. But it's not just me you're afraid of. You're afraid of each other too. and yet you'll hide and do things that God doesn't want you to do, and he sees it all. Isn't it funny? God's out of sight and out of mind. But our brethren are in sight and in mind, and therefore we don't do things in front of them that we're willing to do in front of God when they're not around. Strange people, people are. Human beings are strange. And... Their mind is carnal and deceitful and desperately wicked, and the only solution is the Spirit of God. And we must go to God and be filled with His Spirit so that our human nature and human carnal spirit does not override what God is trying to do in us. Human nature is pessimistic, and it is down on people. And it is very difficult for human nature to see the good in each other. But God is able to, and God has told us that. Esteem others better than yourselves. Don't put them down, lift them up. But we have trouble with it because we are so much influenced by our human nature, every last one of us. So we have work to do. I'm not trying to get on us here and put us down and make us feel bad unnecessarily. I'm just saying 
There's two ways to approach things. His brothers did it with jealousy and envy and hate and sold him out. He reacted with love, mercy, forgiveness, and blessing. Which of the two do you think God would want us to be? We will stop there for sake of time, and it's a good lesson for us to ponder.